Cedric, welcome to the Liberty and Cedric podcast. I think I've told you this before, but it's so weird how when I think about someone, most of the time they live pretty close to me. So I can think of them as over there, right? And on the horizon, I go west or go <laughs> south. But with you, you're really under my feet somewhere, right? Where the bread and the, the planet is in between, right? We're making the earth sandwich. So it's kind of crazy we're in a world where we can have this conversation and basically real time at no cost. Yeah, it's incredible. If there was an elevator, right? Like I could just go down all the way and then like <laughs> pop up yeah, in your like house. Yeah, some old Marvel villain digging yes. underground. And so first things first, uh, can you just give the quick intro to you? Like, who are you? What, are you? what have you done? What are you doing? Just so people have an idea. Sure. So I write a blog called Commonplace. It's at commoncock.com slash blog. And that's actually pretty terrible as a branding. And I probably, I'm going to redesign and like figure out like a proper naming thing that people don't get confused. But most people say like, oh, you, you, you read the Common Kong blog. And effectively right now, I'm a, basically a blogger, right? <laughs> but before this, I was um, I worked for a Singaporean company and I ran operations in Vietnam and we bootstrapped the company from basically nothing. We were doing consultancy, right? Which is like this fancy term that people use when you're basically an outsourcing company and you are <laughs> building mobile apps for other, you know, you, you know, geographical arbitrage, yep. you're in Vietnam and then like it's really cheap. And then like, it's just a couple hours away from every other Southeast Asian country, right? And like Singaporean startups, they pay good money. So originally my boss, he created this company and it was outsourcing. And then he hired me because he wanted to like shift the product because people eventually sort of realized that, oh, you know, like if you're an outsourcing company, you're basically just, you're trading time for money and there's a limit to the amount of leverage that you can have. Long story short, we were there, we pivoted the point of sales, selling point of sales systems, and the company really grew quite well. When I left, I think it was like zero to uh, 4.5 million in annual revenue from scratch in a period of like maybe two to three years. And then I left and I wanted to go start my own company, but then I looked at my skills and I was like, I know operations, I know how to code, I know how to manage engineers and hire and all that stuff, but I don't know anything about sales and I don't know anything about marketing. Oh, I'm sorry. I know I suck at sales. <laughs> not uh, the same. It's yes. not even zero, it's negative. <laughs> yes. And I didn't, I knew I needed to, I didn't know anything about marketing. And you have to be good in one of the two, right? If you're starting a company, right? At least, at least know the yep. ropes. So I was like, okay, let's figure out like, how can I learn marketing? You need a sandbox when you're learning, right? So I started writing the blog on commoncock.com slash blog. And at first it was sort of like trying to learn content marketing and eventually it became like sort of this outlet to sort of understand a lot of the business that I'd seen when we were building the company, right? And the business is much, much bigger now and much more successful. But along the way I had, you know, met a lot of what I call traditional Chinese businessmen. So these were like incredibly superstitious, very common in the region due to the Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia. And so like, these are the stereotypical, you know, they've never had education. They started a couple of businesses when they were young and then they failed or they were like apprentice or like one of them, uh, the, the story that I like to sort of think about is like, oh, recently I was digging into was this guy who eventually started this food chain in Singapore, right? And he started out selling like a push cart, noodles from a push cart <laughs> before right. he was like, he was caught by the police and say like, oh, you know, you're not. So like stereotypical, these kinds of people who learn the skills of business in a school of hard knocks, right? And then we dealt with them and, and they were amazing. <laughs> they could put together all sorts of deals that we'd never seen before and give us the runaround. Um, and, and, and sometimes, yeah, good partners. I think one of them was, uh, we, we were providing point of sale systems to this one guy who he was like 60 or something like that. And he, what, what he was doing was he was basically doing a roll up of all the convenience stores run by individual proprietors who were old and their kids didn't want to take over the business. And he was like 
putting it all into one big company and the pitch to them was like, oh, we're going to list on the Singapore exchange so that you can all retire and get your payout, right? And he was amazing. Anyway, so my blog became the sort of this thing where I was trying to figure out like a lot of the things in business I had seen. And along the way, I don't know how you found it. My joke is that FinTwit seems to have adopted me for some reason that I don't understand because I'm an operator writing about operational things. That's what I was going to say. It's like, we're all obsessed with like balance sheets and, and cash flows. And this, and you're like, no, 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 let's look at the operations. Let's look at how are they doing it on the ground, right? And there's not enough of that on FinTwit. Well, but the interesting thing is I get a huge amount of value from reading your stuff and FinTwit stuff, right? Because um, as an operator, financial, like knowing your numbers at the back of your hand and understanding cash flow and velocity and all these things, these are incredibly useful things. And the instant I read, like, you know how Buffett has this saying about being an investor makes me a better business yep. person and being a business person makes me a better investor. 100%. Like when I start, start reading, you know, I start subscribing to substacks of you know, various FinTwit writers, right? A lot of the concepts that they talk about it's super intuitive if you have the framework of running a business um, at the back, like the skeleton of running a business, right? And then like you just hang these concepts on and you're like, oh, so that's why they were doing this. Or, mm. oh, no wonder they, they try to optimize for cash flow, even though it sort of compresses their margins because they have no choice, right? In, in a scenario where they are willing to take a discount on the price that they charge you if you pay earlier. Yeah. It was like, why? Like, you work so hard, right? And then like, no, no, no. Actually, it's because if they don't pay, then they have cash flow problems. And cash flow is everything for these yeah. if you're running a small business. <laughs> yeah. It feels like there, there's these two sides. And if you have a lot of one, then the other becomes more valuable. Right. Yes. In, in the sense that there's diminishing return to only focusing yes. on one side. So I think getting a good balance of both is, is what more investors should do. You start seeing all kinds of stuff that you will never notice if you start thinking more like an operator, say, when, you, when you've been more of a yes. financial person and probably vice versa. If you are surrounded by people who only think about operations all the time, if you have any kind of that more financial background, probably gives you an edge, right? You're going to see some stuff that they're not going to see. Oh, so no, 100%. I, I, I guess I'm preaching to my own choir as a, as a kind of generalist, right? Trying to do the 80-20 rule on a bunch of different fields. But it, it feels like the intersection of different fields, there's a lot of low-hanging fruits that the specialists may not find. So one of the things that, you know, after falling into the finance rabbit hole and going like, oh, actually, there's a lot to learn here, a lot that's useful to me as an operator, is I start listening to a huge amount of finance podcasts, right? And then they, mm. they, they, you know, they invite these famous hedge fund managers or investors on, onto the podcast. And what I get out of it, so I think what a typical investor listener might get out of it would be like, oh, here are the ways to get alpha or like the strategies that he, or the way he thinks about it, right? What I'm getting out of it is like, actually, if you listen carefully to the ones who run successful, large institutional firms, I keep noticing that these people are really good organizational designers, Right. And in a way that when I listen to like a typical um, an investor in a smaller firm might not be as good. My sort of feeling is that in the investment business, it's a completely people business. Right. Where the quality of your returns is completely based around the kind of talent that you can track and like how well they can perform in a group setting. Right. And then once you scale, the question is like, can you scale that sort of like people centric more than like it's more than like say an operational business where say it, when we are selling point of sale systems, then there's things related to supply chain, getting hardware and writing software and all these things and putting it together, right? Finance businesses are sort of like simpler where it's just literally like what's in the brains of the people making the decisions and then the, there's a trading department, right? But then operationally, it's actually less complex than most typical businesses that I see. But then the magic of like why some shops can grow very large is that they're actually good organizational designers. And I feel like 
most investors, especially if they're sort of like in a smaller firm or a medium-sized firm, they either don't have that skill set or they don't know that the skill set exists, right? That's super interesting. And it's like, there's the IP, that's kind of like, you know, the knowledge and the brains of all the employees. There's the sales side, because you're going you're gonna yes, 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 to sell yes, yes. the firm to outsiders and to also to the talent, right? There are two kinds of sales that you've got to do if you run that's one of true, these. Yeah. It feels like. But then I'm also wondering, everywhere I look, it's all power laws. So is it the same with these firms where if you're lucky, you become a kind of shelling point for your niche, right? So, oh, I want to invest in like fancy new tech things. Oh, I'm going to go in ARC, right? People think about it immediately mm. like the, the retail investor. In some other niches, it's going to be like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm this kind of investor. I'm going to go with WCM or with you know, Counterpoint Global or like some names just pop to mind and they've built this brand, right? It feels like, as you say, it's there's a lot that you have to do that may not be obvious at first, right? When, when you're on a smaller scale and you're not dealing with the same kind of like distribution problem. Yeah, well, I mean, you could sort of say like some of the genius of Constellation is in the own design, right? Yeah. Because like they're able to do such a high velocity of deals, right? Whereas like, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think Buffett from reading about him is as good at own design as Mark Lennon is, right? Because Buffett is pretty much hands off, you know, like he, he does design the incentive structures quite well, but then he doesn't have to have like this incredibly high velocity, which, you know, requires a certain amount of this, like you have to figure out like how is your organization going to run? And it's definitely a larger organization in Constellation than it is in Berkshire. Mm. Berkshire, I think, hasn't grown for like how many decades, right? There's that. And then like, then there's another layer of complexity. If you go up to like the multi-part hedge funds and you listen to the people talking about this. I was listening to uh, Invest Like The Best, right, uh, recently, and uh, there was one of the founders of one of the... And, you know, he, he sounded like a typical business person who was thinking about, like, how to scale the organization as opposed to an investor. And anyway, this is things that you pick up when you sort of, like, think in terms of, like, own design, right? Which is, like, how do you design the incentives, but also, like, how to de design in a way that the politics doesn't get in the way of the organization's goals. And then you have to figure out, like, how to do stakeholder management, how to do good LP management. It seems like that's part of the game. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, sounds, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to do that. Because <laughs> they're all calling yeah. you at the same time at the worst possible moment when you're trying to focus on, like... <laughs> <laughs> when the opportunities all come at the same time in the market, all of a sudden, like you, you're getting emails and phone calls from freaked out LPs, right? Yeah, I would really like to hear some investors sort of explicitly talk about the own design aspect of the business because, well, out of curiosity and also like as, a, as an operator, I'm just, I love when I can listen to somebody who's really good at uh, trying to figure out the right structure for the business, right? That gives them an advantage. Here's a funny story. Okay, this is back in my wheelhouse of businesses, right? So we sold point-of-sale systems to uh, basically... There are three kinds of businesses that you sell point-of-sale systems to. There's like the gyms where, where you have like some sort of CRM, right? Sorry, I should start from the most basic. So the most basic is like the 7-Eleven or the convenience store where, you know, you bring the goods to the counter and you pay it. And then there's the, the what do you call it, the gyms where there's like some sort of membership component attached to it or whatever, loyalty, right? It could be uh, dance studios as well or karate dojos, right? And then there's FMB, and FMB is like a completely different world where you have to like do all the management and stuff. So we could figure out the first two fairly quickly, but then dealing with FMB restaurants and, and, and cafes, right, mm. was a completely different wheelhouse. And it took us a very long time, I think like maybe two years to sort of figure out like how to sell to them and what their incentives are. And so like the typical incentives for an FMB industry, and I think what's funny about this is that we had to learn this the hard way by like trial and error. We couldn't like read a book. I, maybe we should have like gone to somebody more 
experience and they would explain the business model to us, right? When you were doing this, it, it was all greenfield, right? There was nobody already there that we, you were competing with. You had to kind of create uh, the model for the locally they, or... There was competitors, but I think we were clueless or stupid or... <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, it's, it's like... It's like, yeah, there are frameworks and stuff like that, right? But then, like, we never actually taught to sort of thing, like, how does the restaurant industry work and how does this translate to us doing sales, right? So to give you, like, maybe more, a more concrete detail on, like, what's the kind of problems that we face, when you sell to convenience stores, one of the pitches that we could do is, like, sort of um, cash theft is a problem, right? Because you are dealing with like a lot of cashiers in all these shops, right? And when you say cash theft, you know that it's an incentive, like they have the incentives to sort of reduce it because their eyes light up. And then when right. you go to restaurant owners and you say like, hey, you know, like this solves cash theft, their, their eyes will not light up. Like, oh, interesting, interesting. Like, okay, cool, hmm. right? And for CRM, it's it's more like, you know, are there ways to sort of reach out to your existing membership to like incentivize them to upgrade or whatever, right? I'm going somewhere with this with scale. So a typical F&B business, the ongoing cost is basically 80% rent, cost of ingredients, and then labor, right? And that's it. And so like cash tab isn't that big of a deal because like the number of transactions per, per night isn't that high, right? And if you sort of come to them and so like, say like, oh, our point of sale systems will help you manage inventory and you know allow you to save costs, they'll be like, ah, in ingredient costs, we can't really change it. It's like, it's the marginal saving is not really great, right? And so we eventually realized that the way to sell to them is to sort of like tell them like, hey, our point of sale system has the ability to sort of increase your sales. And the way we do that is we say like, oh, if you have an ordering system, automated ordering system, um, because the Singapore government was trying to push people giving grants out for automated ordering systems for immigration reasons, because they didn't want uh, to import too many waiters from elsewhere. <laughs> yes, Singapore is interesting. <laughs> um, but And so if you use an automated ordering system, your per order size goes up, right? Because the app never forgets to upsell at the end of the ordering session. Right. So when you go to a McDonald's kiosk in Singapore, this is actually very clear. Like the flow is always to suggest like desserts, right? So that the per order size goes up, right? And it, we know from, from running this that like, extra $3, $5. And when you tell this to the restaurant owner, their eyes light up, right? So all is well and good. We finally figure out how to sell, okay? Like there are many other features that we can do that sort of leans into this insight. And then once we reach the scale players, suddenly they were like, yeah, whatever. Like we're not that interested <laughs> in bringing in more traffic or increase orders. And then we were like, why, right? So yeah. it turns out, that if in Singapore, if you hit scale, the highest scale, so I, th I suppose I should sort of clarify what I mean by scale players. I mean specifically the food court operators and the coffee shop operators. So in Singapore and Malaysia, there's this thing called food courts, which by the way, if you ever come, I will bring you <laughs> to take a look at them. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Um, where it's, it's a really interesting model where uh, they buy some sort of uh, large space in a shopping mall and then they divide the entire lot into multiple small stores. And then each store sets up different food. Like it could be like, you know, noodles in one and rice in the other and so and Thai food in, in the other. And they collect rent from these stalls, right? So they're so, sort of like a mini landlord, but and then, but they're branded so that there's brand power in the sense that like people know that, oh, this is a good food court and we should go there, right? They completely were not motivated by footfall because they had a symbiotic relationship with the malls here where if you are a mall operator, you want to have a food court because then it attracts footfall because people know like, oh, there's a good, there's a good food option. And indeed, if you're in Singapore, right, you could like go to a mall and go like, oh, do I want to eat like ramen? Let me check the ramen shops. Oh, the default option is always, let's just go to the food court and see what's there and eat, 
right? So they don't really care about transaction size or footfall because if they've done their work well, they have already got a good deal with the malls that they select so that there is always high footfall. So their own design, and, and like I did not realize this until like much, much later and I've left the company and my boss was like, okay, we finally figured out like what motivates them. <laughs> and it is, they scale, they completely tune everything for scale. So for example, Every single uh, worker in a food court has um, they have SOPs, standard operating procedures, tuned like to the last detail. They centralize purchasing. They centralize. They have a central kitchen to prepare soup bases and stuff. And so the incentive structures completely change, right? And when I heard this, I was like, uh, "Wow, the amount of." Org design and scale and tuning to be able to run a business from like a couple of shops to this size, and it happened over the last three decades. I say since the late eighties to now, right? That was pretty impressive, and I did not realize. And then I started digging further. But anyway, so this is the sort of like things that you come up when you're sort of operating business. I think you like to say that investing is your window to learn about the world. I think running businesses and then like looking at businesses and then talking to other people running businesses is how I see the world, and that's what I write about. Reminds me of a tweet I posted today about how like there's the cat like scratching post and then there's a cat playing in the box and it's like what you think the user will want and what they actually yes. want, right? It's exactly yes. what you have to do as a business. Try to put yourself in the shoes of your customers and figure out what they really want. And from the outside, at first you may think, oh, it's obvious, right? Or they all want the same thing at different scales. Or but as soon as you change a few of the incentives or a few of the details on the ground, it could be very, very different. And so that kind of detective work that you're talking about that you had to do for different types of customers, that's probably like a lot of the work at first, right? Just for, for a few years, you're not getting traction and you don't know why, but nobody is going to come and tell you, well, if you, if you only solve this problem for us, it would change everything because like, yes. it's not the, the customer's job to tell you how to do your job, basically. They're just going to wait for you to figure it out. Right? That's why some customers are so valuable because some of them will unlock it for you. Right? Some of them will tell you the right thing at the right time and it, it changes everything, but most of them probably won't. Actually, you know, one thing that I've, I, I've learned is whenever you talk to a, a startup operator or a business operator, well, probably a startup operator because they have more of this problem of like trying to figure out what the customer wants, right? Whereas if you're running a typical business like a barber shop, then that's not really a problem. But if you ever talk to a startup operator, the question that I like to ask is like, can you tell me about like the aha moment where you sort of understood something surprising about your customer? There's always one. There's always one. It'll be some weird thing where they realize that, oh, you know, this pattern of behavior where they're not responding to this particular sales pitch, but they're res responding to this like one or two sentences and then you dig in a bit further and then you realize the whole business is structured in a way that makes the customer very incentivized to do this to get this one thing done <laughs> and then it's there's always one there's always maybe, one maybe because we talked about him before the intro but it makes me think of jimmy Sully's book about paypal and how they all wanted to build a certain business right oh we want to beam money oh, with the yes. IRS. but the customers were all basically telling them no that's not what we want we want to email money but they only build that feature as a kind of like <laughs> a side thing and that's what was getting traction for a long time they were trying to fight distraction and, and they were trying basically to tell customers they were wrong no come back to this product it's much cooler but nobody wanted it right so Actually, it's so it's so funny how even in the middle of it even when when dollars are coming in for something it may yes, still not be obvious my god yes i i really like that part of the the conversation where sort of your podcast your interview with jimmy sony right where, where sony was sort of saying um when you talk to people trying to invent something, it's usually not what they intended that turns out to be the thing, right? It's always something else. It's always like some unintended thing. And then they have the, they're smart enough to go like, okay, let's, why not we just lean into that, right? And he talks about like how that's actually something that 
people should pay attention to instead of all these sort of uh, stories uh, about tech, right? Like it, there's actually something quite beautiful, but also scary about trying to figure out something new and then like your original plan never works right Be- yeah. i see that i'm sure wait so you have startup experience as well i'm sure you have seen <laughs> some variant of this right yeah it's 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 uh, pretty deep in the archives of my mind so i have to think about some <laughs> some concrete examples but definitely like you're always figuring out new things right because especially if you're not like a fast follower or someone who's like mm. okay there's a clear leader what they're doing is working we're going to take that model and run with it but if you're kind of inventing the model as you go, maybe you have a bunch of competition, but they're all kind of at the same point as you are, right? Everybody's trying to figure it out mm. at the same time. That's kind of a, it's exciting, but it's also, you can bang your head against the wall for a long time before you figure it out. And during that period, it seems like it's never going to work. Wait, so I'm curious, at the time, were you already quite financially savvy? Like in the sense that uh, you already invested and then you could start seeing things in, your, in that business, the startup that you're working at, because you were already learning these things about evaluating businesses? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I learned that later. So at, at first it was totally like coming from the, let's just do the job, right? Let's just make the thing happen. And I, I, I kind of knew nothing on the business side. I, I kind of learned through it, right? Just by living through it. So that's basically somewhat similar to my experience, right? Because like right now, I, I so we've had this conversation before. I can't be an investor. I'm not an investor. Right? I don't know whether I have the stomach to be an investor, right? In your AMA, you talk about uh, how to sort of weather a bear market and you sort of get used to it. But you in the beginning, you I noticed you said oh, yeah. it was quite horrible. <laughs> so I hear things like this and I'm a bit scared. And I don't think I can be an investor, but uh, very much in the same sort of boat in the sense that like my startup experiences were not very, I, I didn't really know, you know, what gross margin and all these things, all these typical things like velocity, free cash flow, right? Pretty important stuff. And then you realize that actually like business people who have been at it for a while, even if they are not formally educated and they don't know the names for these things, they intuitively know it in their gut because this is the essence of business, right? But I only learn about these terms much later. Now that I've had this experience, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, I wonder, you know, like the, the most people who do tech companies, they don't think in terms of finance or they mm. don't, you know, unit economics is something that VCs have to drill into some, some founders' heads. And they don't think about the implications of certain features on the business or they, you know, they're not very savvy in terms of like how the bones of the business work. It reminds me of something uh, Rob Koifman told me about how like if he had to do it again, start a new business, he would have so many advantages over the first time because there's so many things he had to learn the hard mm. way and took a long time. And it feels to me like there's this on one end and on the other hand, right? So on one end, if you do it a second time, you know so much, you're going to make fewer big mistakes. But on mm. the other, you're probably older, you have a family, you're not going to like, you know, burn the midnight oil and, and spend all day and all night at the office. And so I don't know if these advantages like cancel each other out or if certain people can make it work and others just couldn't redo the startup from scratch again. I don't know. Another thing I was curious about, I just love this idea, your idea about how, I think you call this cognitive flexibility theory, or is it this thing about how it's hard to extract principles from stories and anecdotes and stuff that happened to people because there's kind of like, a, I don't know if it's a fractal nature or is it holographic encoding or something, but there's a lot of data that you're going to lose if you try to take it out of context too much. Am I, am I getting it right? Can you explain this? Right. Yes, yes. Okay, so, so I guess for the, the benefit of your listeners who don't know, who are not familiar with like my work, I, I write a lot about business, but also from an operational point of view. But everything in that I write from is from the perspective of how do I become a better business operator, right? So you're like, a lot of my readers, they're coming along for the ride because like I'm looking for better ways of thinking about operations. I know what I'm good at. I'm 
fairly upfront about it. I'm fairly good at organ design. I'm a fairly good manager. I can do, I, I think I'm okay in terms of like understanding how the markets, like how a market and trying to figure out like what the customers want in the market. Not so good in finance and improving, <laughs> uh, but any tool that I can get and I can use to become a better, eventual better business operator, right? I will go and dig into it and write about it. And so like this theory is a learning theory that comes from a book called Accelerated Expertise. And at some point, I think I do want to have a conversation with whoever. I think the first time we talk, you know, I asked you like, what is the nature of expertise in investment? And how, right. and like, yeah, and you're like, oh, there's so many styles. And like, at some point, maybe we should talk about this after this, because this is one of my big interests, like the nature of expertise, because I, I sort of figured out like the nature of expertise in business. But anyway, the book is a, a report commissioned by um, the U.S. Department of Defense, right, on all the techniques that the military has sort of figured out on how to accelerate expertise. And basically, at the end of the, near the end of the book, the, the re- researchers say that everything that they've done that have worked, right, sort of rests on two learning theories. And cognitive flexibility theory is one of the theories mentioned. And so, I, you know, after reading the whole book, which, by the way, I do not recommend unless you have a lot of patience for reading academic, like, lit review, like, because, like, two-thirds of the book is a lit review of the existing literature, right? And only in the last third do you get like the stuff like, here's what we've done, here's the stuff, the kinds of expertise that we've successfully accelerated. And that's really the interesting bit. But anyway, so cognitive flexibility theory is a theory about learning from the original field was from trying to accelerate medical expertise. And it deals with something called an ill-structured domain. There are actually four big ideas that we have to cover in order to talk about theory. So two ideas to set up like what the theory is about and then the two ideas that the theory actually consists of. So the first big idea is that it is concerned with ill-structured domains. And the definition of an ill-structured domain is there are concepts in a domain, but the way the concepts instantiate in the real world when you have to operate on it is highly variable, right? Even though right. for the same type of concept. So Example in medicine is a heart attack is a concept. You can read about and learn about the mechanism of a heart attack in a textbook. But when you have to diagnose a heart attack in the real world, right, there are so many ways that heart attacks can present themselves, right? Some heart attacks, you know, they start out with indigestion and you come to the doctor with indigestion. And some heart attacks are very long, you know, they can take multiple days. And some attacks are like the textbook kind that you imagine in your head where you sort of get a heart attack and then you fall. Right, in a movie, right? Oh, I grab my arm and fall on the Wait, floor. Yeah, exactly. But real world doctors know that heart attacks can present themselves in incredibly huge, a v- huge variety of ways, right? And so like the trick is like, how do you teach these to medical students, right? Who read about heart attacks in the textbook and they probably have a prototypical idea of the movies. version of a heart attack right when in real life heart attacks can be completely different based on the you know the gender the age the case history of the patient a huge amount of things right that is sort of idea number one ill-structured domains and you can sort of like see why this might be valuable to business people or investors right because that sounds super familiar right exactly right like you have if you if i tell you scaled economies right like the prototypical textbook example might be oh you build a large factory and then you have lower unit costs but then like in Hamilton Helmer's like Seven Powers, he has this case study of Netflix, right, which has scale economies. But the scale economy, he doesn't have a factory. Uh, instead, he raised a huge amount of junk bonds and then like it used the junk 
bonds to create this content pipeline, right? And then the per subscriber cost amortized across the entire subscriber base because Netflix was the largest uh, streaming service meant that like there was this bar that every other competitor who wants to enter into the streaming services, unless they already have an incredibly large content library, would have to struggle to sort of match, right? So there are many different instantiations of unit costs. Anyway, so we live definitely business operators and investors alike live in an ill-structured domain. Idea number two, if you are in an ill-structured domain and you want to teach people to be able to operate well, right, you cannot rely on first principles or frameworks or concepts alone. In fact, the researchers claim that cases are as if not more important than concepts. And the sort of argument that they give is that if you go look at doctors, right, junior doctors are not able to reason from case presentation and symptom presentation down to the mechanism of disease, nor can they reason from the mechanism of disease that they've learned in their textbooks mm. to the actual sort of instantiation in the real world. So, and in fact, if you go and interview, and they've done this, right, they've done cognitive task analysis on expert doctors, expert doctors are able to deal with new novel case presentations by analyzing it and then sort of combining and fragments from previous cases that they've seen. So they reason from previous cases that they've looked at, and they combine fragments from different, it looks like a little bit like this and a little bit like that. Right, right. right. They don't go back to first principle, right? They don't go back to, this is what's happening inside of the cells. So this is what I'm seeing on the patient's face. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Uh, so if you sort of agree, like you believed what the researchers say, right? Like that, that this is the nature of reasoning inside such a ill-structured domain, then you should also like sort of think, wait, this kind of makes sense for business and investing as well, right? I mean, a lot of people talk about how Elon Musk is like incredible first principles thinking. And I think uh, Sony's book, as J Jimmy Sony has talked a lot about yeah. like how the PayPal people have a incredible first principles thinking. But if you look, you, you look at a lot of their problems, obviously there are first principles thinking aspects to what, to any problem solving approach. Like for uh, Musk, I think the most famous story is when he's sort of like trying to figure out like how to build a starship cheaply, right? And then from first principles, the bill of materials of like how what goes into a starship. Yeah, if you go on the commodities exchange and you buy the exactly. materials per pound, right? It's going to cost this. And then like, what's the minimum cost of rearranging these atoms in, in the form yes. of a spaceship, right? That's that's very first principle. And that works, right? But then like, if you think about like some of the more business moves that SpaceX had to do in its history, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there was another executive who came up with a business model, right? And surely that isn't completely first principles, right? That's a, sort of a bit of trial and error. And this also explains to me some other things. So like, to make my biases very clear, I am a computer science graduate and like, you know, more engineering trained. And so like, I believe that first principles thinking is the best, right? That's my bias, right? <laughs> it's certainly um, the most elegant. I feel like- It is. For, for big breakthroughs, you need it a lot of the time. For everyday operations and like running a business, like you, you just can't, right? Our brains are not designed for that. But it's like, it's like this magic ingredient that you need to sprinkle on top of a lot Yes, of no, 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 exactly, exactly. So, so, so I think in your interview with Jimmy Sony, Sony was like saying, uh, there was like this almost throwaway comment where he said like, oh, um, surely it can't work for 100% of the time, but then like the truly breakthrough innovations, like it's usually the 10% of the time that it does work, right? And that is like the fundamental sort of takeaway that one of the engineers in early PayPal had. Like now that he goes to any other place, he always tries to like put on the first principles thinking hat just to see like where it brings him. I'm probably, you know, destroying the anecdote. But for those <laughs> listeners who want to know, go listen to Liberty's podcast with Jimmy Sony. But if you look at like some other thinkers, right? So so this is a thing that was always confusing to me as a person who is incredibly biased towards first principles thinking, right? Charlie Munger reasons a lot from analogy. 
Mm-hmm. People like to talk about like how he has like whole this mental model thinking, but when you listen to him, right, every time he sort of like talks about some business situation or he analyzes it, he'll he'll be like, oh, this reminds me of, and then he pulls up an analogy from some business in like how many decades ago, and he tells you the story. This reminds me of this and this, and he's using it to make a point, right? Which is yeah. very unusual because a management consultant or an engineer trained person will be trained to like, here is the point, and here's the supporting argument, and here's the. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if. I don't want to derail your point, but I'm no, wondering go, go, go. if this is a way for, like, the way humanity has evolved, we can compress stories really well in our brains and remember them very well. So there may be a benefit to keeping the whole story because there's information in there that you can apply later. And if you extract only the, like, the bullet points, you're going to miss a lot of it. That can be true. But at the same time, I think it can be true that people who have a lot of stuff stored in their database, right, in their brain, <laughs> basically they, the way they can keep it in there and apply it is by using like the, it's like the water flowing downhill, right? To our brain, it's much easier to use and remember stories. Mm. So I wonder if these, these two things combine. Oh, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, there's a quote, I think, by one of the, I think Gary Klein, right, the guy who created pre-mortems, he likes to say that data may be what convinces us, but it's the stories that we carry mm. with us going forward. Yeah. So, so there's, there's definitely something there where uh, when you, if you want to remember things, it, it's very natural for your brain to sort of look at stories that you have in the back of your head in your database, right? And then draw a fragment from it and then combine it with another fragment of another story that you remember, right? Right. And Buffett does it all the time too, right? If yes. you had a super like jargony term for standing on tiptoes of the parade, you wouldn't remember it as well. But when you, you think about, okay, standing, okay, I, I get it immediately. So it's the way to compress the idea, remember it. And so a longer story, a longer business story is kind of just a version of this. I think Eugene Wei had a good post about how yes. Bezos is also great at compressing ideas in memorable ways. So yes. the business, the perfect business anecdote is just a longer version of day one, right? Day one is, is short and sweet, but the story about how Coke bought like shrimp farms and oil rigs, that story also makes a really good point about like diversification, right? Yes. I think the other thing that stories does is that if you sort of make a point, right, the problem with business and I think in investing as well, primarily businesses, is that like, If you make a point, obviously the point is true for some businesses in some instances, in some industries, but not others, right? So you have to make the point in, in the context of a story, right? And that's not to say that the person who uses the story and uses this sort of analogical reasoning, right, which is a rich area of research in cognitive science, is worse, somehow like worse than a first principles thinker. It depends on the context, the domain that you're operating in. In a domain that has incredible variable instantiations of concepts, you cannot remove the context from the point you're making. Right? Because if you try to make the point, if I sort of like say, make a blanket statement saying that, like, oh, you know, like in scale industries, like scale will always lead to advantage, you'll be like, no, well, there's this one yeah. business in this one. <laughs> there's yeah. always an exception, right? The most important thing is RD and development velocity. Oh. Well, if you're in software, maybe, but if you're a real estate development, like maybe not, right? Yeah, exactly. Or like maybe it applies to you, but then there's maybe this one incredibly unsexy portion of the software industry, right? Where the competition isn't as fierce and therefore it's not as important. What's more important, like some other thing, right? And then that changes the debt. Yeah. And you've looked at, if you've looked at enough businesses, you realize that like, oh, you know, like there's always weird exceptions because of some weird quirk or maybe some local law or some weird labor market inefficiency, right? Or some person that is so outstanding yes. and yes. heads and shoulders above everybody else that they, they kind of like, they do something that they should shouldn't be able to do in some industry, right? Some, yes. some industries are known as terrible businesses, but there's this exception over there that's been making like, I don't know, 20% kickers for 20 years. No, 100%. And when you sort of like take a look at these two ideas, like 
if we take the finding from medical education acceleration seriously, right, the idea that you need to focus on cases to teach, not just the concepts, then this sort of rhymes a bit more with my experience with business where you can never start, it's never enough to teach the framework. You always need to know like how the framework instantiates in the real world in at least a few scenarios before you can sort of reason about how to apply it to your business, right? And so I'm, I've always been distrustful of people who come in and go like, oh, we're just going to follow this framework. And I'm like, really? Have you actually tried to apply a framework before? There's always weird caveats or like weird things that you have to like sort of fit to your situation, right? Anyway, so these are the two ideas to set up like cognitive flexibility theory. The core of the theory is that in ill-structured domains, the theory claims that experts reason by doing two things. The first thing is that they have a large experience base and they draw fragments from prior cases that they've seen to reason about the current case that tends to be novel because like, you know, concept instantiation is highly variable. Um, and then the second thing they do is that they eventually all adopt an approach, that a belief that there is never one model that explains the world. There is always multiple models, multiple prototypes. They're all equally valid, all equally helpful. It's, it's surprising, like all good doctors have this mindset. So unlike us, where we have like a prototype of like what a heart attack look like, looks like, they never have one prototype of what a heart attack looks like. They have a cluster of prototypes that they can draw from, right. right? And similarly for you, right? When you look at a business, you'll be like, it's not just one prototype of what a good business looks like. There's a whole cluster that you can draw on, uh, fragments on when you're looking at analyzing a business. And as an operator, if I'm looking at a certain like, you know, sales efficiency, it's down, right? I'm not sort of like immediately going like, oh, from first principle, sales efficiency means this, right? I'll be trying to draw from like what I know of the rest of the company and what I've seen before to sort of reason about is this a bad thing or a good thing? Or, you know, what should I go? Where should I go to? Uh, who should I go ask in an organization for more information or what might be going on, right? So it's this sort of reasoning that seems to rhyme with like how I, I see things and how I, at least I, my experience in business. And I think when I tell this to people, especially investors, like they tend to be like, oh yeah, that actually kind of makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. What, what, what do you think? <laughs> no, no, it, totally. And, and it feels like in the abstract, if you had like infinite intelligence, right? If you were mm. some Ian Banks AI, and you could really understand everything at the same time from the physics point of view, right? If you, I know the position of every atom in, mm. in this, this part of the universe, you could really understand the whole thing from first principle. But our brains are so limited. That's why we have to simplify everything and look at a, a tiny part of it there, a tiny part of it here, and then try to make this little mosaic from a few of these models. So it feels like trying to reason from only a few principles is just a kind of a smaller bottleneck for reality to come into us, right? If you have all of these different experiences and, and, and stories you know about, it's just kind of a wider lens to try to catch more of what's important. It feels to me like, anyway. I know it's kind of abstract to describe it like this, but it's like, it's not because it's physically impossible. It's just, we're so limited that at the end of the day, we can only see and, and understand so much. So we have to try to, as we we're saying, compress it into something we can understand. So if I could really look at the whole business, right? If I have a thousand mm. employees and I could see inside the brains of this, these thousand employees, I would have a much, much better understanding of what's going on, right? If I could really understand every customer, my thousands of customers, like it would be very, very clear what's going on with the business. But if I'm sitting here in my office, you know, on the fifth floor, I have very little real information about the business. I have some people under me who give me reports. I'm in a few meetings. I, I, I talk to a few customers, but it's super limited. So that's why like, you have to pattern match from very, very incomplete information. So it makes total sense to me. Like, I'm not sure how our limited human brains could do more than that like from first principle, right? It, it has to be that you have to pattern match much more widely. Well, so 
here's the catch, right? Here's the interesting catch with that, right? Like, so don't get me wrong. If the domain is well structured, which means that concepts are always, right. you know, they always turn up. You should do first yeah. principles thinking. It is the most uh, efficient way and the best way of reasoning about problem solving, right? So engineering problems, a lot of them. Yeah, if you're debugging uh, uh, some code, yes. like, right? Yes. Don't try to like be fuzzy about it. <laughs> yes, but you, you see, here's the catch. Because we've been trained, I think, by our education systems to sort of value this sort of like, it's the principle or the technique that matters and the examples are sort of disposable, right? So we learn this in math class, right? You, you teach you how to solve a quadratic equation and we give you one or two examples. And But you know that the examples are like sort of disposable and what's important is like learning how to, the moves to like, or like why the quadratic equation is like that, right? Like, but, and so like we, at least for a certain class of people who have been inculcated with the STEM method, or if you go through management, I find that management consultants are the same thing, right? Because <laughs> they, they are taught to think very, very logically, right? When you try to explain your expertise and your expertise consists of this cluster of prototypes, you would try to distill it down to a principle or a framework. And then I, I wonder if you've ever had this experience and you, know, you, you try to explain your principle or your framework. It's always really easy. It's just this, this one rule, right? And you explain it to a subordinate who's maybe like more a novice, right? There's no way they can do the same thing that you can do, right? Because they mm. don't know how it instantiates in the real world. So they'll do something incredibly boneheaded and you're like, no, I just told you the rule. I said, but how do they know that the rule is applies in that particular scenario, right? The same words trigger very yeah. different parts of, like in my brain, if I hear this phrase, it triggers a whole set of stuff, right? Of experience and memories. But in the newbie's brain, the same words don't trigger much, right? Yes. So, so they yes. mean very, very different things. Yeah, that makes total sense. And that's, that's yes. why it's so difficult to transfer this experience-based knowledge because a lot of it is not... Like, if all my knowledge about a business came from a few books, I could give the same books to someone else and in theory yes. could have the same knowledge. But if you've lived it, if you've been in like the trenches and a bunch of stuff is non-verbal, a bunch of stuff is, you don't even know why you know it or how you know it, but it's like, it just kind of accumulated over time. And, and not even that, it's not just that you've lived through it, but it's been processed over time, right? I feel like there's a lot of stuff that I lived through like 15 years ago in a certain business I can now, it's like a book, right? If you read the same book twice, 20 years apart or 10 years apart, the book is exactly the same, but you've changed. So you're going to interpret it differently. It's like the same software that's going to be running on different hardware or something like that. So it feels the same with business. A bunch of Elon Musk's early experiences, he's probably getting something different out of them, looking at them from today's vintage point. So here's the actionable bit of the theory, right? So like these researchers, they came up with this, not because they, of course they, you know, they came up with the theory because they want to publish. But they were also doing it in the context of like trying to accelerate these medical students, right, who were leaving the, you know, the, the textbook and the lecture halls for the first time and they are embedded in these hospitals and faced with patients for the first time, right? So they say like, look, if you think about it, the theory makes these two claims and you can actually invert it, right, to like get to the actionable bits. So if experts reason and they reason better in ill-structured domains because they have a larger case library in their heads to draw from, to draw fragments from, then obviously one thing you need to do is you need to give students these difficult cases, right? So, you know, they did this thing where they created this system them and they gave students incredibly complex, uh, rich, complicated heart attack cases, right? And the way they say that you should do it is you give them the first case, right? Okay, reach weight. Okay, this is a heart attack. And then you immediately give them a second case that's very different from the first. Hmm. So you disequilibrate them, right? You make them like go like, oh, okay, it's not just one thing. It's not just one prototype. This heart attacks can also look like this very different other situation, right? And the case would be something like, you know, like a man falls down and like he gets brought into the hospital. And then the second case would be like, oh, the man is like comes in for two visits. <laughs> right. But and, it's kind of a way to make sure their mind is open to more, right? Correct. Correct. Because if you like, give them like yes. 10 cases that are all the same, 
yes. then their mind is like, okay, now I know it. And you kind of close down. You kind of don't look as much for new information. But if you had yes. two very different ones at once, like, oh, okay, I got to be on the lookout for a third way that it could show up, a different way, exactly. right? You're in a different posture. So now imagine you apply this to investing education, right? Imagine how much faster you might accelerate your... So like, say I give you like the annual report of a good company, or I, I don't know how like you might want to compress a case. And then I give you a second one that's very different. Very different, uh, maybe, I don't know, margin characteristics, right? But you say, this is also a good company, right? And you explain why. And you give them a third and a fourth. And the researchers say that you want to aim between 10 and 20 for ill-structured domains like medicine, right? At the end of it, right, students will have all these cases. And then you ask questions like, okay, tell me how case A is similar to case D, even though on the surface it looks very different. Hmm. Or tell me how case B is very similar to case E, even though they're on the surface they're very similar. Tell me how they're different, right? And then you force these young doctors to sort of like reason about like, oh, you know, like here are some surface things that are similar. And even in cases that are very different because they're the same nominal type of the concept, they should be some similarities, right? And you force them to do this. And that's one way of learning, right? So can you imagine applying it to say investing or like maybe for business operations, it would be like developing a competitive moat, right? Like process power shows up very differently depending on the industry. One thing that comes to mind is how I've seen many investors kind of evolve with this, right? So they mm. start out, maybe they learn about Buffett or Ben Graham, and they're like, deep value investing is where it's at, right? All intelligent investing is value investing, and this is the way to do it. <laughs> this is the answer to everything, right? And some people may come out from somewhere else, right? Some people are day trader or technical analyst, and they think their way to do it is the way, right? That's the smart way to do it. And then over time, they kind of like look around and see that other people seem to make sense, right? It's not, hey, I, I thought I had found a way, right? I, I had the right religion or whatever. And then over time, they kind of like go look a little elsewhere. Oh, maybe the growth people have some good ideas. Oh, maybe the, I don't know, the, the technical people, it's not all voodoo, right? Maybe some of it is part of like human psychology and they understand a few things. I, I'm no expert at everything, but I, the more time passes, the less judgment I pass on other styles of investing are different from my own. And even my own, I'm having trouble describing it because it used to be very like, oh, I'm, I'm a Buffett guy or something. And now it's like, well, I'm kind of like uh, something, right? And this feels like a kind of a, a more zoomed out way of looking at different types of cases that are all very different, all contradict each other. And you try to figure out like what's good in each, what's bad in each. And it keeps your mind more open to learning, right? I feel people yes. kind of get stuck on one thing. It's like the guy who thinks all heart attacks are the same, right? All mm -hmm. value investing is about finding the cigarette butt at 0.5 book value. And then you sell it when it gets to about 0.8 for margin of safety, right? Mm. That's a very rigid way of thinking about the world. And it could be suboptimal by itself if it's wrong, but it could also be that the world is going to change on you. And you, if you're not open to oh, looking at yes. all these other inputs and cases, you're going to be left behind. I, I think it's funny that the theory sort of describes that every expert in an ill-structured domain eventually turns out to be like this, right? Where Because they realize that the concept instantiation is so different from each case to each case, right? That eventually they're like, okay, I need to like have multiple ways of looking at every case that I see. And if you can give me a tool, even if it doesn't seem to make sense, let me try it on for size first. And maybe it'll help mm -hmm. me with like some of the cases that I'm looking at. And eventually the true experts are the ones who sort of never get bogged down in one definition. And so that's how you get really good doctors, right? You've, they've seen so many cases over the course of their lives that they know that, okay, the, the body is a really complex system. We don't know how it's going to show up. So <laughs> let's, let's be a bit humble with like our models of these diseases, even if we know the mechanism. It reminds me of a, a quote I really like by, I think it's Eliezer Yudkowsky. It's kind of tangential to this, but he talks about how 
Some people will basically live the same day over and over again. They never do anything new, they never learn much. And so they may be 50 years old, but they may have lived, I don't know, like 15 years of unique days in their lives. And some other people may be the same age, but they're like a 5,000 year old vampire because every day to them, they're learning a ton. They're doing always kind of new things, exploring. So you can't judge someone just by the time they've been doing something, right? That's true. So this doctor, he could extract much more value out of each case in the way that he thinks about it or the patterns he's seeing. And this other doctor could extract almost no value from even seeing different cases because like basically making mistakes by sticking to his first impressions of what a heart attack should be or whatever. I, I'm not a doctor, right? I can comment on the, the medical stuff precisely, but I can kind of clearly see in my mind that this kind of like foundation of keeping your mind open to these kinds of patterns, you're going to extract so much more value from it. It's like the deliberate practice versus like just a practice where you don't stretch yourself at all and you don't improve, right? But it's so hard, right? Like the, the older you get, you sort of like think that you know what's going on, right? Like, yep. like for us, I guess, like we probably struggle with crypto. I don't know about you, but I, I certainly do. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm younger than you and I'm a technologist, right? So I should be like more open-minded. But there are certain aspects of crypto that I'm going like, oh, really, really? <laughs> I, I, was, yeah. I was telling NFTs to a friend, right? A programmer friend. And he was like, Cedric, I've never felt so old so quickly in my life. Can we go back to like 10 years ago when everything <laughs> made sense? <laughs> Well, I think uh, it's a good test. It's good practice. I With crypto, there's a lot I like and there's a lot I dislike, but I always try to keep an open mind to it so that yes. at some point so I could hard. see something and be like, oh, this is really impressive. This is creating a ton of value. This is solving a problem. What's tough to me is there's so much noise, right? And I'm not like 18 with all my time. I can't be in 200 Discord channels at the same time and <laughs> sift through all of the noise. I'm sure there's a ton of good stuff, but it's wrapped around like 10,000 Ponzi schemes and crypto scams yes. and everybody's spamming you on Twitter. I feel like, yeah, some things are like, I want to say a young man's game, but like when I was a certain yes. age in between a certain period of my life, <laughs> I had so much free time to go down rabbit holes about anything. Like I'm still coasting on a lot of stuff I learned when I was that age on books I read at that time. I feel like I, I just can't do as much of it anymore. Well, it's sort of like how I sort of map this back to the whole 1999 like dot com boom and bust, right? Like there's a lot of shit companies back then because there's a book. There's there are now websites that sort of make fun of crypto, right? You know, they they say like, oh, crypto's really rubbish, and I think I think there's a uh, Webtree is going great dot com is the site that sort of like <laughs> describes all the scams and all the failures in crypto. But back in the day, there was a, there was this website called fuckedcompany.com, yeah. right? Right, and then it became a book. And sure, the guy got published, and it was probably very entertaining for all the people who are skeptical of dot-coms. But we don't care about those companies that are dead now. We live in the world that's like sort of shaped by Facebook and Google and Amazon. Amazon was around, Google and Facebook later. But we live in the world shaped by these companies that emerged from the dot-com boom, right? And so like similarly, the question, the difficult thing about crypto right now is like, it's not the bullshit companies. That's easy, right? Yep. That you can get like a gajillion likes, like just sort of pointing out like, this is stupid, this doesn't make sense, this is environmentally bad, right? The really hard thing is what's the Amazon that's currently amongst all the, the power of like really bad projects, right? That's going to change the lives of our kids. And that's the thing that, that worries me or like makes me go, you know, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, you know, I should go dig further. And <laughs> yeah, no, that, so, that's such a good point, right? At the end of the day, it's like a VC portfolio. Yeah. If nine out of 10 of their businesses go bankrupt, but the 10th one is Google, doesn't matter. And so, so totally, that's why I try to keep my ear to the ground there and just... I don't know, my, my test is always, 
is it creating value and solving a real problem or is it a way for mm. people to speculate on price moves and so far i'm seeing a lot of ways to speculate on price moves and i'm not seeing that many ways of solving someone's real problem there are some of it i just would want to see more of it or see one of those become huge instead of if the only big businesses that come out of crypto are like coinbase and all these businesses that are mostly like a bunch of people buying and selling stuff like that's less interesting to me right they, they may make billions of dollars but it's just not as interesting to me mm. i wonder about the whole like i mean if you sort of think back to the amazon example right amazon was in for an incredibly long time like looking like a, a terrible business mm. and so i worry that some form of that will happen with some crypto coin right and we're all like oh yeah. it's stupid stupid for like 10 years and then like 10 years later we'll be like oh we're all you know <laughs> we're all using it and we are, we're sort of like hitting ourselves on the hand for like not realizing that it was run by a genius <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we can't tell, we can't tell, we just have to like try to forcibly like hold open our minds and not dismiss it just because it's easy to do so. But it's so hard. It's so incredibly hard. Yeah, well, it's like a muscle. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Like it's like admitting you're wrong. Do it as many times as possible, as publicly as possible. Like that's the only way that you're going to train yourself to be able to do it when it really matters, right? So if you're wrong about a, a small thing, like I try to... Yeah put a correction, tell the person, I like, just make sure I do it when it's easier because otherwise there's no chance I'm going to be able to do it when it's a real huge thing and I, I really screwed up. Okay, so since this, we are sort of very near the adjacent to the topic, right? So I mentioned in Accelerate Expertise, there were two sort of learning theories, right? And we just talked about one, yep. cognitive flexibility theory. The other theory is exactly what you just said. It's, it, it is an explanation of why certain people can reach mastery through trial and error and other people cannot, hmm. right? So this theory is called cognitive transformation theory. And the core assertion of the theory is that the way we learn is, you know, we do something, so like maybe ice skating or whatever, and you form a mental model of the domain, right? And when you're sort of very unskilled, what happens is that you make a lot of mistakes and your mental model is constantly disequilibrated and then you have to reform a new one, right? At some point, most people have a mental model that is complex enough to let them be good at the thing, right? Or to be able to accomplish uh, certain results that they want in whatever field it is, whether it's writing or podcasting or like investing, right? Or, or business, right? The difference between the people who stagnate at an intermediate skill level and the people who reach true mastery is that the ones who reach true mastery are willing to let go of certain bits of their model, right? So at some point when you become a intermediate skill level, your mental model becomes complex enough that it becomes a knowledge shield. And what that means is that you use your rich mental model to explain away data that you don't like. Ah, experts right. never do this. I mean, experts in the real world who manage to reach uh, like incredible levels of expertise to trial and error, they always have tricks to try to make themselves correct their model or go back and relearn lessons. I think Manga has this thing where he says, I've trained myself to really love destroying my, my favorite ideas. And yeah. this to me is like a mechanism that he has de developed to try to achieve this. The theory then goes on to say that this implies that the higher you go up in the skill tree, the more energy you have to put into like this correcting and checking your models. And the reason why this is hard and what it will feel like is that when your model is rich enough, and you have to you know, make a small correction to it, what you have to do is you have to go back to all your old lessons and re-encode those memories with the new mm. model. And this is quite difficult for people to do. That's something I admire so much when I find someone who's like, some people are really good at, you know that moment where it's like, huh, that's weird. 
or something's like they notice when something doesn't quite fit and my reflex most of the time is to explain it away it's like oh they power through it or it doesn't matter but some people will find a little thing that stands out and they learn from it and and that's when you learn something new that doesn't fit the model and then you update the model and i'm trying to learn to teach myself to be very open to these hmm that's weird moments right Two implications of the learning theory, right? Cognitive transformation theory that you can use immediately. So the first implication is if you know that you have to go back and re-encode your models, right? This means that you should never hold on to the lessons you've learned from prior experiences too tightly because you might suddenly, you know, go up another skill level in your in your skill tree and then like realize that you actually learned the wrong lessons. And it's in fact common to learn the wrong lessons when you're at an intermediate level or the lower skill level, mm. right? So you should expect to need to go back to prior experiences and relearn certain lessons or like draw new conclusions from them, right? So that's like the first thing. Uh, and, and conversely, the people who stagnate are the ones who never revisit old lessons and they sort of like accept it as ground truth. Like I've learned this lesson forever and that's forever. And the example that I like to give here that I think matches to real world experience, right, is because it's all sort of theoretical and abstract is uh, love, right? We don't go to school to learn how to date and how to get married, right? We learn it through mistakes and it's totally possible for you to like do some stupid thing when you're a teenager and learn the, the wrong lessons from that experience in your first relationship or your, whenever that is, however young you are. And then later on, you are sort of trapped by those stupid stupid uh, lessons that you drew when you were a younger, you know, yeah. stupider version of yourself. Or people right? learn from so, movies, right? They think a real life relationship yes. is supposed to be like a Disney movie or yeah, romantic comedy. Yes, yes, 100%, right? And the second sort of actionable implication of this is that anytime you meet someone who is an expert and who has gotten there through trial and error and experience, you should check not just for the mental models that they hold in their heads, right? But also for, it is highly likely that they have developed certain tricks for revisiting and correcting their mental models when they were intermediate skill level. And it's really important to try to go and uh, steal those techniques instead of like, if, if you cannot, like you, you only have like a couple minutes with them, right? And you, there's no way you can extract or apprentice, be an apprentice to them to extract like the actual models of expertise in their heads, right? You should try and ask them like, how do you deal with mistakes? Or how, can you tell me about a time when you change your mind and like develop a new lesson? You notice that nearly all the successful business people that I've met also like, and you know, investors who sort of talk publicly have little tricks that they use to make it easier to go back and change their mind about things. Ray Dalio has this, this thing where he says, lean into the pain, right? The pain is a signal that you need to update something mm. <laughs> about your beliefs about the world, right? Uh, and Manga has this whole thing about a point of uh, feeling good when I think not just Manga, but you have said this as well, right? You, when you try to, ch to change your mind on something, you try to make yourself feel good about it. I, I could be wrong with it. I don't know if you've said this before. Um, trying to remember. I don't remember this exact formulation. Hmm. Okay, maybe I'm mis mistaken. <laughs> but oh, we've talked about changing minds before yeah, in the past. I, I say so you... many things, right? <laughs> it's hard to keep up with everything I've said. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm at the point where I often like... I'm about to write something and then I'm like, oh, it sounds familiar. And then I, I look it up on Google on my own site and it's, <laughs> I, I've written about it like a year and a half ago. <laughs> the curse of the writer. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially given that you're so prolific, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. 
I was talking with Jimmy about this. Like he wrote a book over like five years. You spend so much time with the material. You can revise it. You improve it. You polish every sentence. I was telling him about some parts of the books. And he was like, oh yeah, I wrote this. What I was thinking this. Like I, I rolled out of bed and I had this idea. Like he has metadata about every part of the book because he spent so much time on it. On my side, it's like, okay, this is this this has to go out this morning because then I have something else right after, right? It, it's it's there's a benefit to having this ongoing conversation with people because I can get immediate feedback. A lot of the feedback from one edition is what kind of powers the next edition. So this has a great flow to it. And with a book, it would be hard for me to write for so long without feedback, right? People haven't seen my book for three years. Is, is it even good? Do I even know what it is about anymore? Like this kind of uh, perspective would be very, very different. But at the same time, sometimes I, I look back and I'm like, if I had more time, I could have done such a better job on this part or I could have ex explained this thing much better. So th there's pros and cons. Well, there are certain affordances of your style, right, that you can't really pull off in a book. So for example, right, you, there are teams in your work that if a reader has been reading your stuff for long enough, they're sort of like, no, ah, Liberty is on its nuclear, everybody should be on nuclear power <laughs> thing again, right? Right, right? Yeah, and, yeah and I mean, for sure. We know this, like, if you read Matt Levine, Matt Levine has this whole, like, everything is all securities uh, fraud. Uh, wait, was it securities? What yeah. was this saying securities again? Securities fraud. They, yeah. <laughs> everything is securities fraud. Um, he also have the Elon markets hypothesis, right? So, like, the joy of the newsletter writer is that you get to call back and bring up teams and sort of say, ah, look at this new development, right? Which ties into this thing that I, has been one of my bugbears for the longest time. And, I mean... I don't, I don't publish as frequently as you, but uh, certainly there are, there are certain things that just keep popping up again and again in my writing because, and if you've read it for a long time, you sort of know that it's obsession, right? So like one of my obsessions is how do I extract expertise from the heads of experts if I meet an expert, right? That's an ongoing obsession. And everything that I've just talked about, all the learning theories actually just comes from this field of research that has specialized in doing exactly that. It, the field of research, by the way, it's if you're interested, if anybody's interested in Googling, it's called naturalistic decision-making. And it's basically the field of psychology funded by the military that basically enabled Gary Klein to do all of his work. So pre-mortems, the Sources of Power book, like all of that and the body of work that he has built and all his collaborators, right, is built around like this idea of you developing methods to extract expertise from the heads of experts and then turning those into training programs. And you can probably see why the military is so interested in that, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But I want to use that for business and for operations and stuff like that. That's one, another great source of value, right? Right. When you take the tools from one field and apply it to a different field, it's like the first person that used, I don't know, like some type of machine learning from a field where it had never been applied before. Like you, you get a bunch of, of the value and the low hanging fruits there. And then, but once everybody is doing it, it's the Buffett thing. Everybody's standing on tiptoes of the parade. But yes. when you were talking about how you, you know, when you read someone, you keep seeing the same themes again and yes. again. I wrote something a while ago called something like why your mentor seems less impressive over time or something like that. Oh, I love that. I and love that. The basic idea is that nobody is going to come up with new original ideas faster than someone else can learn them, right? So when you start from zero, everything you learn from Buffett is blowing your mind because you're starting from zero. But over time, you'll never reach Buffett's level there's still a differential between you and him, but this differential is a lot smaller than it was when you were at zero and he was at like 95. And now you're maybe at 70 and he's still at 95, but he's still much better than you are. But And also Buffett, like, that's why old Buffett fans would be like, oh yeah, there's nothing new in the, new, the letter this year, right? It's kind of, kind of the same thing. It's like, yeah, sure. But like, let's try to see how many ideas of the caliber of Buffett's ideas you're going to come up with in your own life, right? It's like, you can't hold him to a standard that's impossible to achieve. 
when I look at my writing, I could try to be like, oh, I've already written about this. Like, I got to find something new, something new. But this obsession with the new has downsides too. I feel like some stuff is more like your favorite album, right? You listen to it a bunch mm. of times and you, you find new things in it over time. You find new depths in it. You notice new things. So I feel if you study the same kind of ideas for a long time, part of it is you change. So you, how you interpret the data, the, maybe the same data is different. It's kind of like, kind of like rereading the same book, right? There's some of that. But also a good idea is rich enough that you can apply it to so many things and so many like situations and stuff. That it shouldn't feel stale right away, right? You should be able to get a lot of mileage out of it. So that's why I try to look at the same types of ideas, but from different angles or... I don't know. I, I feel like some people are too obsessed with the new, right? Some people should be reading scientific textbooks instead of the new journals, right? Or the new controversies of the day. I'm going to make a very bad joke. You're looking for new concept instantiations. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it kind of... the subtitle of my site. <laughs> I mean, but it, that is kind of how your expertise is built, right? As an investor, right? Yeah. Like you have an idea, and it, if, but if you find new concept instantiations... It's not like you're not learning anything new. You're learning a new case that you can draw fragments from when you're analyzing some other company or some other idea, right? So like, it's totally legitimate and valuable for you to sort of go like, oh, you know, here's a new way of looking at this old topic because the world is incredibly complex and the world is, you know, filled with like varied case instantiations, right? It's 100% like what, what you do, there is value in sort of like trying to take old ideas and making them fresh because who knows the person reading it, right? Just this particular way of framing the thing doesn't resonate with them, but then this other way of framing it resonates with them. I think there's this thing by uh, Jason Zweig, right? The, the finance writer, he says that there's actually nothing new in personal finance or investing, nothing radically new. And so the job of the finance writer, if you're writing for a personal finance audience, is to find new ways to repeat the same ideas again and again and make sure that they don't know that you're actually repeating <laughs> yourself again and again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of my things I keep saying over and over again. In investing, almost all of the important ideas are simple. They're just mm. difficult to execute and they're difficult to remember. So that's why you have to kind of refresh them in memory over and over again and try to iterate on them and practice and like that muscle, right, that you have to train. So when the time is right, you can do it because like, you know, figure out the value of something, try to pay less than it, try to figure out if the business is durable, try to like, diversify in some way. All these concepts are not super difficult. And yet you look around and people keep making the same types of mistakes, right? It's just yes. like, oh, someone overpaid, someone was too concentrated in stuff they didn't understand. Someone fell in love with the story of the thing and kind of missed changes in the fundamentals or missed changes in the end market or missed competition coming in. Like all these concepts are not super like, you don't discover one of these frequently, right? There's not mm. some writer coming in and saying like, hey guys, I figured out something totally new about business that nobody had ever thought about before, right? But the application of it is... I don't know. I don't know if it's because it's counterintuitive. I don't know if it's because all of our brains are pretty similar. So if something is making everybody else react in such a way that the market is crashing, it's probably going to make you react too, right? If it wasn't making mm. you react, it probably wouldn't make others react. So it's hard to be totally outside of the system, like looking at it totally like objectively and detached because we all have similar brain architecture. I don't know. The way to make these simple but difficult lessons stick to go back to what we're saying, maybe it is with these case studies and these stories. Maybe these stories can burrow deeper into our brains and affect more how we see the world than these abstract principles that our ancestors on the savannah never had to deal with, right? Well, if we take the theory seriously, right, CFT, right, it's they did 
often live by abstract principle. They may try to communicate it using abstract principle, right? Right. Um, but then it's actually represented as cases in their heads. And so that if we take that seriously, this is a very good reason or a very good excuse to read lots and lots of business biographies. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And, and, and actually, you know, when I read this theory, I sort of felt relief because for the longest time, my friends would press me on like, why would I read so much business biographies, right? Like, why am I reading about like some conglomerate that happened in the 60s, right? Because it's never going to exist again, right? And then my response to them is like, now I have a coherent ex- response, right? But in the past, I would be like, oh, you have to listen, learn from history. Otherwise, like you don't have any sense of context. But now I know actually what's the, the real cognitive mechanism that allows you to have benefit from reading a lot of biography, which is that you have more cases and more fragments to draw from when it's time to sort of like make a problem assessment and you're trying to solve some problem in an ill-structured domain. And so like, I finally have a coherent like, response to like, why I read so many business biographies. I'm glad I also have a way to explain it now because <laughs> when I started out, I, I, I read kind of like some biographies and some like more business books, like in the abstract. Yes. And over time, I now realize I got so much more from the biographies. I think it's David Senra from Founders Podcast who made me realize the power of these biographies because that's what his podcast is. He's reading these biographies and memoirs and then he's kind of trying to distill the main points, the main stories from them in a podcast format. And it's incredible the amount of value that I'm getting. We're all running mental models of other people in our brains, right? And so you know your, your wife very well and you can kind of know what she's thinking about stuff and what she's going to say. Well, you have a mental model for Warren Buffett and Elon Musk and mm. Steve Jobs. They are kind of lower resolution and they're based on kind of second-hand anecdotes, but they're still kind of running in your mind. And so when you keep adding these people in your mind, all these biographies, when you look at something now, you can be like, what would Henry Singleton think about this, right? The stock Ooh. is low and they don't, need, they don't need the market for financing. <laughs> Should they do a tender <laughs> offer? Like you, you, you can kind of have these people who are easier to call up upon than just what would be ideal capital allocation with the five types of capital. Some stuff is not going to yes. come to the surface as easily as, as if you had a friend who was advising you on it. The consigliere over your shoulder is like, hmm, I've seen this before a long time ago. And that's a very different... Anyway, for me, it works better. You just called out to a book, right? Where uh, I think it's Will Thorndike, The Outsiders, right? Where he yep. sort of like articulated the playbook, right? But the book was represented with like a number of case studies, right? Exactly. So I think that's a perfect example of what a, a learning session with CFT, using sort of CFT principles, right? You introduce the concept and then you just repeat the concept again and again and again with different case studies. So I think it was like, I think it was Henry Singleton in the beginning, which is crazy. Like he invented the whole like stock buyback technique. Well, well not invented, a genius, but, like in so many fields. Yes. So for him, business was like, oh yeah, it's one of the yeah. things I do, right? Buying back 90% of the outstanding stock. And then there was Warren Buffett and like, who else? Um, John Malone is definitely one of them. Yep. And so like, when you finish the book, you're not only walking away with like, oh, here's the capital allocation playbook, but like, here are six or seven, I can't remember how many uh, CEOs, completely different like case studies of how to implement the capital allocation playbook. And that's what you should be aiming to be when you're a CEO. And that's certainly like, it's one of my favorite books because uh, when you're running a business, you don't often have somebody sit you down and go like, oh, actually there's this other role that you have to do when you're running a business and it's generating money, which is like you have to decide where to allocate the money. And that it's more an investor than a business person. And you need to understand the financials, the numbers in order to do a good job of that, right? Yep. Uh, there's the famous Buffett quote about like top CEOs training to be top pianists the whole life. <laughs> and suddenly, <laughs> yeah, suddenly yeah, they yeah. get up to the, the top and then they're told to play a violin. Yeah, the people climb up the ranks in sales or management and they've never had to do any capital allocation and all of a sudden it's their main job. It must be such a culture shock. 
speaking of outsiders, this book to me is so much more powerful when combined with the Halo effect by, is it Phil yes, Rosenberg? Yes, Rosen, I think Rosen, Rosenzweig or Rosenberg. So to me, these two books balance each other out so perfectly that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. It's easy to come out of the outsiders thinking like, oh yeah, this is the only way to do it. But then you read the other thing and you realize, well, a business that has great success, people are going to impute all kinds of qualities to management. Other businesses that did the same thing failed. So it's a, always a lot more complex than just like buy back your shares or like do some M&A. And as kind of the meta point of all this is it's always way, way more complex, which is why you should study so many different case studies, right? So many uh, real so world. So many different animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So many different animals so that when you see an elephant for the first time, you don't think it's a, a tree trunk or a serpent or like, Wait, as so we're mixing metaphors. and, <laughs> and we, we, we have a mutual friend in Lillian Lee, right? Who writes yep. Chinese characteristics, the Substack, yep. right? So she's great. One of, the jokes, one of the jokes that I have with her is like any equity research analyst or finance Substack writer who describes businesses, as she does, right? She describes Chinese tech businesses to the outsider, right? What you're basically doing is you're a biologist. You're like, you're holding up a platypus right, <laughs> to the reader and go like, look at this weird animal. Look, at it. it's, it's claws and it's a beak and it lays eggs, but it's a mammal, right? You might think that this is a really weird animal, but then let me explain to you the ecology that it comes from, right? right. The evolutionary path that it took, the competitors that it had, right? The food sources that it had, right? And that's totally 100% like what's going on in businesses, right? Like a lot of these Chinese businesses are incredibly weird, but then they make sense once you, once... Li like in, in the environment with the evolutionary exactly. pressures, right? Exactly. With Which the competitors and the dynamics and like the sources of capital and the government, like sort of changing and shaping the market, right? Then like these Chinese businesses aren't completely weird. I think she was recently talking about some business. I, I can't remember which business, but it was like a, the cross between a fitness influencer uh, app and a social network and Zoom or something like that. It's, it's weird. Like in the West, you'll be like, what, what kind of app is this, right? But in China, after she describes like how it grew and, you know, like the path dependent, like sort of uh, opportunities they took, it sort of makes sense. And so when Phil Rosenzweig was talking about the halo effect, talking about like how you cannot never, there's never a strategy, you know, or, or like an approach to the business that works in every sort of domain. The reason is because there's different ecologies and different ecosystems and different like, sort of competitor sets, right? And every animal has to figure out like their own evolutionary uh, adaptation to thrive in the particular setting that they find themselves. Exactly. It's like reading Ben Graham today, right? If you take it out of its context, it could lead you to big mistakes because the context has changed so much, right? He was investing at a time when there were lots of net nets and you can learn from what he did in the context that he did it. And then you try to change that so that it works today, right? The same, a lot of the same principles work, just not the mechanical application of these principles exactly as yes. he did them, right? You yes. have to evolve with the time, especially in a complex adaptive system that, you know, as these lessons diffuse through the system, through the, the members of the system, the investors and everybody that's doing stuff, the system is adapted to these lessons, so they may not work as well. Oh, 100%. I mean, like that, that's, uh, everything seems to come back to CFT, right? Which I'm obsessed about. <laughs> Which is like, I mean, like, if you look at scale economies, right? Like, even just looking at the story of one person, um, what's the founder of TSMC again? Maurice Chang. Maurice Chang, Maurice right? Chang. Yeah, so Maurice Chang came up with the, what do you call it? The pricing curve model for semiconductors. Right. right. He was at Texas Instruments, brilliant, right? Where, brilliant, Yeah, crazy. Like, the idea of, like, pricing things incredibly low so that you have incredibly large volume. You capture the market, uh, market share, right, for that chip. And then, like, you run out the production line to drive down the learning costs. And then, hopefully, yeah. like, you can keep running that chip for an incredibly long amount of time to recoup all the initial costs that you got from, like, keeping unit costs, uh, unit price incredibly low. 
But then later when he got kicked out of Texas Instruments and he was forced to start TSMC, he couldn't use the same strategy because everybody else had understood the implications of that pricing curve model, right? So like the way that he could get to scale and have advantages from scale economies was completely different. And what a master that he invented yeah. the pricing model that the whole industry used and then later like had to adapt to everybody understanding it and still finding a way, right? Uh, a niche, an ecological niche to slowly grow TSMC into like this now powerhouse that, you know, very, very difficult to compete against. So same concept, different concept instantiation in different cases. Once again, I have to plug the, um, the guys from Acquire did a series yes. on TSMC that's excellent. So if you've not listened to it, I'm sure you have, but if the listener, if you have not listened to it, I highly recommend it. And there's a new one on NVIDIA too, like they're killing it on semiconductors. It's so good. It's like the closest thing to magic that humanity can do right now. Like just the ASML machines, that's just magic in itself. And then TSMC itself, the foundry part, that's totally magic, right? And then once you have the final product, you have this tiny bit of like polished sand that can do (laughs) trillions and trillions of operations per second. I I think if most people understood better the technology that they have in their pockets and on their desk and everything, like our minds would be constantly blown, right? I guess it's a good thing for humanity that we adapt so quickly to what we have and we're dissatisfied Mm. and we want more. It pushes us to do better and keep improving and innovating. But still, I think sometimes we should appreciate a bit more what we've been able to do. Listen, we we have to do this again because we can talk for hours. But before we go, there's one more thing I want to ask you about. Tell me about your experience reading Ian M. Banks' (laughs) science fiction. I'm curious. So, it's been years since I've read those oh books, but they've God. been important to me. So I'm curious what so, you think. So a number of things. I should have. I think I should have stuck with your the recommender reading list, right? But I skip ahead to uh, player of games because I'm a huge board game fan, <laughs> and multiple people that when I went to Goodreads, right, like I knew one guy who was a huge board game fan as well. He's like, this is the best, <laughs> best science fi sci-fi novel I've ever read in my life. Like, uh, it's like the if you love board games, you must read this. And I was like, okay, I'm so like, and I, and I read that right, and and I highly recommend. Anybody listening to this who have who has not read um, Ian Banks the Culture series, it's a completely every book is different. Like if yep. I'm not mistaken, well, actually, is that true? Because you you gave me a certain order, so I assume that there might be something to that order. They're all based in the same universe, but the same characters don't carry from one book to the other. I, I think there are some cameos, like from some AI ships and some kinds of things that appear in more than one book. But in general, it's more like an anthology than a, a series with the same characters. That's why you can read in a different order. So here's the funny thing, right? So I was reading the book and because I started with player games, they don't actually explain what a GSU is or, uh, you know, like what these big ships, they, they use ac- acronyms. Right? I think it's GC, GCU, GSU, and all yeah. these ships have incredibly weird names, Yeah. right? They yeah, gave right? names to themselves. I think they're AI powered ships. So basically the ship is conscious and it's incredibly intelligent. Some of them are like almost planet sized. And uh, yes. they have, most of them have, have a sense of humor too, and they, they have crazy names. Most people are, have probably been exposed to these names because Elon Musk exactly. has been giving these names to the drone ships that catch the rockets at sea. So, so this was the thing that I, I, I didn't realize. It felt really off and weird and, and funny and yet familiar at the same time. But only after I read the book, I think a few months after I read the book, right? And I was listening to your interview with Jimmy Sony. And I was like, the drone ships that, that <laughs> the, the SpaceX rockets land on are named after culture ships, which is why they have these weird names, like just read the instructions or, yeah, I still uh, love yes, you. I still love you. Of course, I still love you. <laughs> of course, I it's still so love funny you. how one of the most sci-fi things that exists today as names that come from actual sci fight right it's like uh, the chicken and the egg right and it fits right because the drone ships are also in spacex are also powered by ais 
right? Yeah. So they're autonomous, right? But imagine in a hundred years, right? Humanity is, is much farther along than we are today. We have like all kinds of spaceships and rockets and stuff. And maybe they all have super clever, weird names just because of I would Musk that. started the trend, right? It would be super I funny that, that some like huge starship going to Mars is called like, I don't know, like uh, some of them are, uh, ah, now I wish I had the list in front of me. Uh, very little gravitas indeed, or weird names like that. <laughs> well, it's okay. Here's my pitch to anybody who's listening. If you want, if you're, why should you read Ian Banks, uh, the culture series, right? I think there are a lot of sci-fi novels, especially in this point in time, that are dystopian, or they sort of like talk about how technology destroys mankind or yep. leads us to do horrible things. And it feels too close to like the current state of uh, the world, at least the zeitgeist, right? What we believe in. The culture series is not like that. The culture series is a utopia where AI and humans coexist. I think the other novel, really novel thing is that the, the culture as a civilization is not planet-based. So it is completely based on ships. And there's no such thing as territory that they hold. It's more like what uh, systems are under their influence because their ships can pass through. But yep. most of the population of the culture lives in the ships. And I found that incredibly novel. And the world is completely coherent. And the world building is sort of like slowly revealed over the books, even though the books are sort of like self-contained stories that you can read. And yes, if you like playing board games, read the player <laughs> of games. It is so good. <laughs> So what's interesting is most sci-fi is dystopian because that's more dramatic. What Ian Banks has done is he's created a utopia that is a great vision for like that you could hope for for the future. But then the books are still dramatic because the culture only controls a certain portion of the universe, right? So most of the books happen at the intersection of the culture and somewhere else. So the culture has these kind of special forces that they call special circumstances. And these people yes. go into different other planets and other systems and they try to make various types of missions. But So there, there's still a bunch of drama. One of the things I love about the culture is basically it's almost a, it's as if humanity had created like AGI, right? General intelligence that mm. kind of like self-improved to the point where it's so much more intelligent than we are. But then they use this intelligence to create a super interesting and comfortable world for, world for themselves, where they have a lot more control. So I don't know if they talk about this in Player of Games or just other books, but they talk about how even if you're still like a biological human, inside your mind, you can look at a kind of dashboard for your body and you can be like, control your yes. own hormones and drugs. And so, oh yeah, I would like to do like a heroin trip right now, but without yes. any addiction or problem. Oh, I, I would like to be um, female, right? So your hormones are going to change and over time you're going to become become a woman and then you can switch yes. back to that. All, all that kind of stuff is just like trying to think of how humanity could, I don't know, give itself more control. They have all these VR worlds that you can go into, but the real world is also super interesting inside these giant planet-sized ships. And anyway, it's, it's fun to mentally live in a utopia if only for a little while. And also, like, it's really hard. I, th I think he was very ambitious to sort of set himself uh, a utopia instead of a dystopia, right? Because yeah. there's no tension. Like, you want for nothing. There's no currency. Anything you want, you can have, right? Like yeah, It's a, a post-scarcity world. So exactly. They, with nanotech and everything, they can basically make anything physical that you could want. So that's exactly why, like, you're going to see when you read Use of Weapons, that's why you follow these special circumstances that go into other worlds where it's absolutely not like that. And the contrast is part of the cool thing. And by the way, Ian Banks wrote this stuff in like the 80s. So the way he could Goodness. Um, think about technology in a way that didn't age too much, right? Because it's so advanced that it's basically almost like Arthur C. Clarke says, like it's, it's almost like magic that it, it didn't age as much as some other stuff that's like a bit too close to us. Like it's too computer based and you read about it and it's like, mm. uh, we're way past that, right? They, they couldn't have imagined like iPhones and the internet. And so yeah, I think Ian Banks has, has yeah, aged pretty well. 
And also, like, I think the, the other bit of the challenge they did really well is that humans don't change, right? So even though yeah. they're in a post-scarcity world, there's still envy and jealousy and status and love, right? And so, like, out of this sort of lack of tension, he can still create certain sort of, like, storylines that are so compelling because he has to fall back to human universals instead of, like, some sort of external situation where, you know, there is a conflict or there is a obstacle to some goal because it's a utopia, which is why I think it ages so well, you know, speaking to your point. So, read the culture. It is, I think it was the best recommendation that you have given me so far. I, I can't wait to see what's after. <laughs> Before we go, I'm going to tease the the reader with oh, no. a, a little thing that may want to, to make them read it more. So there's a, a joke in Use of Weapons that involves a hat that I think is one of the funniest things I've read. And so when you, when you get to mm. it, let, let me know. Get back to me. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. It was great talking to you. It's a, a nice morning for me. A nice... I guess you're going to go to bed soon. That's, that's the thing yes, with being a, a, a planet sandwich, right? Yes. We're opposite times of the clock. So I'm going to let you go, but uh, this was great. And let's do this All again right. soon. Yes, definitely. Bye, Liberty. Bye-bye.